traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Repeating, we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. of the airwaves and welcome to Radio Free Canada News Notes and Opinions from the Underground for Wednesday, September the 14th in the year of our Lord 2022. Be sure to check my website out, therichardserrettshow.com. If for, for no other reason than it cost me a lot of money. <laughs> Seriously, it's a very cool website, therichardserrettshow.com. And you can contact me through the website and you can listen to past episodes of The Richard Serrett Show from the website. Quite frankly, it should be required listening. There are only a handful of truly common-sense conservative talk radio shows in the entire country. Mine is one of them. The Mark Petroni Show and The Greg Carrasco Show. Two more. So there are three excellent conservative talk radio shows in Canada, and they all happen to be right here on Saga 960 AM, wouldn't you know it? All right, uh, Jacob, if you might play a little music, please. There you go. 
from my producer, Declan Phillips. He's celebrating his birthday today. And Declan is 13. I don't own too many 13-year-olds with a full beard, but seriously, <laughs> how old are you, Declan? Jump on the microphone very quickly. How old are you? Uh, just turned 22. I guessed 22. In my head, I'm thinking he must be about 22. <laughs> 22. Wow. Well, happy birthday, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. I have serious. This is this is true. I have socks in my sock drawer that are older than you. That's true. Twenty two. I remember twenty two vaguely. Uh, happy birthday! Seriously, you're doing a great job. We all want the war in Ukraine to be over, and I've said over and over and over again that Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, is a thug and he is the aggressor. Uh, and incidentally, it, this war is particularly painful for Orthodox Christians because we're seeing Orthodox Christians in Russia fighting and killing other Orthodox Christians in Ukraine. Uh, and despite the, the recent gains by the Ukrainian army, Russia is winning the war. That's not me rooting for Russia. That's just a fact. And this is going to sound controversial, and I suppose it is, but if there's one good thing to come out of this horrible war... It's this. The sanctions that the EU and NATO countries placed on Russia as punishment have backfired. And in retaliation for those sanctions against Russia, Putin turned off the taps on natural gas to Western Europe, Germany in particular. And by doing that, he has awakened the West and the governments in Germany and France and Great Britain to the absolute folly the absolute folly of their net zero carbon emissions policy. And now that Europe is facing a horribly bleak winter with skyrocketing fuel costs, fuel shortages, restrictions on how high you can turn up the thermostat or how low in the summer, as the case may be, where 60% of factories in Great Britain may have to close because of the cost of electricity, this has given Europeans and the West a sneak preview of what life will be like if we follow the ruling class and the Davos crowd's mad rush towards green renewable energy. It's a suicide mission. It's a pipe dream. And it will have catastrophic consequences for the world. And unfortunately, in Europe, they're going to get a taste of that this winter. And people will die. People in Europe will die this winter. I don't know how many. They will freeze to death because of the cult of climate change. Because Germany and the UK and other European nations bought into the big lie that they could stop producing their own natural gas or drilling their own oil. They could shut down their coal-fired power plants, close their nuclear plants, and pivot to wind and the sun. And then when necessary, continue to rely on Russia's natural gas. Now there is no Russian natural gas. So Germany and other countries are going back to coal. And the U.S. is lifting the ban on fracking. And they're going to start again drilling for oil in the North Sea. A painful, painful lesson has been learned. And we are now waking up to the folly of this climate change cult and their mad rush to the bottom 
in pursuit of zero carbon emissions. And we have the Russian thug Vladimir Putin to thank. Global News reporter David Aiken allegedly told new conservative leader Pierre Polyev's press secretary that he could go and tell Pierre to F himself. And then, as Pierre Polyev was making a speech in Ottawa, Aiken began shouting over Polyev and heckling him. He since apologized on Twitter after facing a backlash for his reprehensible behavior. I don't know, maybe Aiken thinks he's Jim Acosta from CNN. Whatever happened to Jim Acosta? He tried to make a name for himself for being equally rude and abrasive during President Trump's four years in office. And listen, I have no problem with reporters asking tough questions and even being somewhat abrasive when holding public figures to account. But this went above and beyond. If true, he told Polyev's press secretary to tell Polyev to go F himself. Would he do that to the prime minister? I mean, isn't that what the media and the libs were wringing their hands over after that big abrasive dude in Grand Prairie went off on Deputy Dimwit Christia Freeland when she was visiting Alberta? Now, on the other hand, I'm hearing rumblings, unconfirmed reports, unconfirmed, that this was all staged. The Global News reporter David Aiken and Polyev's chief strategist Jenny Byrne, as well as Polyev's press secretary Anthony, I, I think it's pronounced uh, Coach or Coke, the press secretary, are all closely aligned, simpatico. So, that, so it was a setup. It was staged. This is what I'm hearing. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. Regardless, Pierre will be in for a rough ride with the liberal left activists in our bought and paid for news media over the next days, weeks and months. So this will this will not be the last time he is shouted down, interrupted, heckled. And that's OK. That's OK. I think it'll play into his hands, Polyev's hands, because Canadians are finally waking up to the fact that our news media is comprised largely of radical left wing activists and Canadians are done. They're just done. They've had enough. I'll be talking more more about this with Mark Petroni, my colleague here at Saga 960, when he joins me last order of business in the second hour. A new preprint study by nine health experts from major universities, including Harvard and Johns Hopkins, have shown that the COVID-19 vaccines are 98 times worse than the virus. And a mandatory booster vaccination in college is, quote, ethically unjustifiable. The unofficial and accidental COVID data analyst Kelly Brown from Rubicon Capital will be here to discuss. Incidentally, on a related note, Denmark has now banned boosters of the COVID-19 jab for all Danes 50 years and younger. Let that sink in. Our crime minister wants everyone to get jabbed, what is it now, every three months? Including toddlers. Denmark is banning the booster for anyone younger than 50. Lydia Perovich is a, a culture writer who emigrated from Montenegro to the open, optimistic country of Canada and threw herself into our vibrant artistic and cultural communities. She was happy with her decision until about five years ago when she says Canada began to change. 
She's written a book called Lost in Canada, An Immigrant's Second Thoughts, and she'll be here in hour two. This hour, we'll continue to push back against the cult of climate change with Tony Heller. Unvaccinated new mothers in British Columbia may be forced to pay $50,000 in maternity leave benefits simply because they're uncomfortable taking the COVID-19 vaccine. Drea Humphrey from Rebel News will be here this hour with that story. But first, Sean Petrie murdered Toronto Police Constable Andrew Hong and Milton businessman Shaquille Ashraf on Monday. It turns out once again, once again, our judicial system has let us all down and with tragic consequences. Petrie has a had, I should say, had a long history of violent crime. Never, ever should have been out free and walking the streets. Joe Warmington from the Toronto Sun is next. The Richard Serrett Show off and running for Wednesday, September the 14th. Facta non verba. We're back as the Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. So, uh, again, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, and, uh, I mean, that's just, it's so, it, it's so frustrating. It happens, it seems to happen every time. We have this creep, Sean Petrie, killed a, a police constable, Toronto police constable, on Monday. And then he shot and killed a businessman in Milton. Shaquille Ashraf. Both were loving husbands and fathers. And uh, wouldn't you know it, he never should have been out on the streets. Sean Petrie has a long, long history of violent crime. Career criminal. Joe Warmington writing about it in the Toronto Sun today, or yesterday rather. Until this week, he writes, when he shot and killed Toronto Police Constable Andrew Hong, it seemed the only thing Sean Petrie hadn't been charged with was murder. Possession of a firearm, robbery, sexual assault, child pornography, prostitution procuring, trafficking, impaired driving, and breaching bail conditions. The rap sheet of criminal charges before the courts against Petrie was so vast and varied that he had documents on the computer in four different Ontario courthouses. Again, this is Joe Warmington writing in the Toronto Sun. Now authorities could add two counts of first-degree murder and three counts of attempted murder to his disturbing arrest record. Or at least they could if the 40-year-old wasn't shot and killed in Hamilton while trying to escape from murderous mayhem he left behind in Mississauga and Milton. Federal parole documents obtained by the Toronto Sun say Petrie had convictions for property crimes, robbery, drug trafficking, and weapon possession. Police on Tuesday were working to figure out which of the charges laid against him had resulted in convictions, which ones were stayed or were still before the courts. That he graduated to such sadistic violence is hardly a shock when you look at how often this man was in courthouses in Brampton, Toronto, and Kitchener. 
Police in three jurisdictions, Toronto, Peel, and Halton, are investigating what happened on Monday, the ambush that left Hong, 48, dead in a Tim Hortons in Mississauga, and the murder of Shaquille Ashraf, 38, in his MK Auto Repairs garage in Milton, the wounding of two of Ashraf's staffers and a person wounded in a carjacking. Again, Joe Warmington and The Sun writing, it's clear this man was routinely in the clutches of the Canadian justice system. But why the hell was this menace not in prison? Exactly. Does this sound familiar? Weren't we just talking about this last week with Miles Sanderson out in Saskatchewan? Again, a long history of violent crime out on the street. Our judicial system, our courts, our parole boards letting us down. Now, I'd say, well, we need a a proper inquiry into this. A formal federal inquiry. But what's what's that going to do? More talk and no action. Our judicial system is a joke. With tragic and fatal consequences. And in two weeks, don't be surprised if I'm talking about another similar situation. Some creep with a long history of violent crime and a gun goes on a shooting spree and kills more innocents and we'll be uh, sitting here again, wringing our hands saying, what's going on with our parole board and our courts? It's just never ending. And I wish I had answers on how to stop it. But I think a federal inquiry might be a good place. Let's find out who these people on these parole boards are. Let's get them in a, uh, on a witness stand under oath, subpoena them, and find out what the hell is going on in their heads. All right, when we come back, new mothers in British Columbia may be forced to pay $50,000 in maternity leave benefits because they are uncomfortable taking the COVID-19 vaccine. Drea Humphrey, Rebel News reporter, BC Bureau Chief, has that one next. Stay with us. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serra Show. The, uh, the callousness and the cruelty out in British Columbia never ceases to amaze. Imagine you're a new mother and you pay attention, you read, you read data, you read reports, you try to make an informed decision. Maybe you've taken note that in the United Kingdom, health services there are not recommending a COVID-19 vaccine jab for nursing mothers or pregnant mothers, pregnant women rather. And so you decide not to take the jab. So not only now are you perhaps risking your, your livelihood if you don't take the jab, depending on where you work, you may lose your job. Now let's say you've given birth, you've collected maternity payments. Now you're being told not only are you fired, but you have to pay back your maternity. Your maternity leave benefits. That's actually happening. This is actually happening in this country. Drea Humphrey, Rebel News reporter and the BC Bureau Chief joins us now. Hey, Drea, how are you? Good. How are you? Sorry about that. I guess I wasn't in. That's okay. You've joined us now. 
uh, this just seems so cruel, as I was saying, and 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 unbelievable. So, t- tell us this story. That um, uh, is this one mother in particular that's having to being told she may have to pay back fifty thousand in maternity leave benefits, or is how widespread is this situation? No, hopefully one day we're going to talk about good news together. But this is another horrible story. And it is a group of moms that um, is approximately around 30 of them that are being told they have to pay back um, up to 50,000. It all depends on when they went on maternity leave. But all of them went on maternity leave before there were vaccine mandates in place. So these women are now being told you either need to jab up or lose your job and pay back tens of thousands of dollars to the government for the top up maternity benefits you received. That's just unconscionable, unconscionable. It it, Uh, it is. And and so they've come to you and they're asking for help, right? Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Curiosity Stream is the streaming service for people who want to know more. And now check out Curiosity's new series, The Real Wild West. Rolling Stone magazine says it's the history of the West they usually don't teach you. The mythology of the West left out a lot of the people. People said they'd never seen a black cowboy. This is the history book, but did you know about these other facts? Watch The Real Wild West now on Curiosity Stream. With monthly, annual, and bundled plans, find the one that works for you at curiositystream.com. So originally I came across the story on, um, I think it was Prince George Now, and they were the only ones I saw do the story and they just had a write up. And at the time, none of the moms wanted to come forward. I was able to track down a mom brave and, you know, put her face to it and interview her, uh, Michelle. And she, in fact, has been terminated as well, which she's trying to grieve through the union And she has been told she has to pay back, I think it's close to 20, it's over $20,000, but still enough, according to her, to bankrupt her family. And she's, of course, in connection with the other moms. And I've talked to the other moms as well, who at some of the other moms who at this time don't want to, you know, put a face to it. They're just in such a horrible situation. They're at home, they're breastfeeding their babies, they have their own reasons for why at this time they don't feel comfortable taking this novel medical intervention and so michelle is sort of the face of it we are looking closely with our charity partners at the situation at the democracy fund unfortunately we've seen this over and over these people in different industries who are supposed to be represented by their unions 
are getting such poor treatment, but they have to go through that motion first before really an outside counsel can do anything for them. Right. Yeah, you're right. Time after time, unions are not standing up. They are siding with the ruling class uh, and and telling them, well, get the jab. We're not going to fight for you. So these these uh, mothers that are coming forward um, that are being told they have to pay back their maternity leave benefits and unless they get the jab. Uh, and they'll mm-hmm. also be fired. Uh, are mm-hmm. they coming from a particular sector? Are they nurses? Are they working yes. for, for BC Health? These are all BC public servants, as far as I know. So different jobs within that category. And that's where it's happening. And public, um, uh, the province did put a statement that basically said, yeah, well, they agreed. They signed that they would come back to work. So you know, they're just sort of washing their hands out of this. But again, they did not know that this would be one of the stipulations. They use that money to live, to survive, to feed their family. They don't have the money just sitting in some sort of savings account to just pay back. Plus, they're looking at how are they going to make money in general now that they have no job. Again, it, I, I have no words. Unconscionable mm-hmm. comes to mind. But I, I was mentioning off the top that in the UK, the health service there has said they do not recommend that pregnant women or nursing uh, moms receive the vaccine. News out of Denmark uh, today yeah. that they are uh, banning the vaccine uh, or, or boosters yeah. for anyone younger than the age of 50. Yes. Uh, and here, apparently, we have our own science. They're just going in the complete opposite direction. It's absolute madness. Uh, so, Drea, again, give us the uh, the details on how people can uh, can help and sign up for this petition. Yes. So, like I said, we're watching this closely. I'm in communication with the moms. The first thing that you can do to take action, if you are appalled with the situation, is go to saveourmoms.com. And at that website, we have a petition set up. What I'm going to do is deliver that. I'm hoping to get at least 10,000 signatures. I'm going to make sure not only that it goes to the usual, which is Dr. Bonnie Henry, Premier John Horgan, Health Minister Adrian Dix. I also want to hear what our supposed opposition has to say about this. What does Kevin Falcon from the BC Liberals have to say? What does our health critic Shirley Bond have to say? Where is their voice on this matter? So we need to let them know that the people are behind these pregnant and sorry, new mothers. And so if you want to do that, go to saveourmoms.ca. Drea, great work as always. Thank you so much. Thank you. Drea Humphrey, Rebel News reporter, BC Bureau Chief, SaveOurMoms.ca. When we come back, we push back against the death cult of climate change. Stay with us. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. The Cult of Climate Change on The Richard Serrett Show. Hey, welcome back. So, what the hell is happening in Germany? Think about Germany. 80 million people. One-time export champion of the world. Global haven for car enthusiasts. An industrial powerhouse with a stellar reputation abroad for clean, efficient, straight, knowing how to do it. And today... Germany is struggling. And just this year, just this year, Germany, Germany became a net importer. How did this happen? (laughs) 
the cult of climate change. That's how Tony Heller is the founder of RealClimateScience.com, and he joins us every Wednesday at this time. Tony, how are you? I'm good, Richard. How about you? Terrific. Uh, so just reading from this article uh, that was written by David Siegel. Uh, it's published on a website called Shortfall. What the hell is happening in Germany? Um, so can you kind of break this down? I mean, let's look under the hood, as they say. Germany, again, we think of Germany as this not only as an industrial powerhouse, but also an energy powerhouse. When did they begin this um, horrific slide into the abyss? Well, about 20 years ago, they they made a decision to transition away from fossil fuels to what they called clean renewables. Um, and, and they've intentionally taken actions to drive up the cost of fossil fuels um, through carbon taxes, um, shutting down fossil fuel power sor- sources of energy. So they intentionally created the situation where half the people in the country can't afford their energy anymore. Um, and and now they have a crisis because this is what they've been trying to do all along. The, the theory was that if they just made fossil fuel power expensive enough and unavailable enough, that would force people into wind and solar power. But it doesn't work that way because wind and solar aren't reliable. Um, and, and so there was never any chance of this succeeding. And uh, three years ago at the United Nations, Donald Trump warned Germany. He specifically mentioned Germany and said they were making a huge mistake by making themselves completely reliant on Russia for their energy supply. The German delegation at the United Nations laughed hysterically. I've got a video out there showing this. Um, and and what, what Donald Trump proved was right now, Russia's cut off their supply of gas. Their renewable energy isn't reliable, and there was never any chance that it would be. And now they've got a terrible situation where people are faced with energy bills in the range of $20,000, 20,000 euros this winter as a direct result of insanity by their government. This This was a um, their government created this crisis. They did it intentionally. They did it through incompetence, perhaps maliciousness. But whatever it is, it was created by the government, and there was never, never any reason for it to happen. Right. And I was reading in this article that Germany, over these, I guess you said 20 years, they've pumped in something like 400, they've invested 400 billion euros, 400 billion euros of taxpayer money in pursuit of this, you know, uh, green um, uh, renewable energy fiasco, $400 billion. What do they have to show for it? I mean, how much of their energy today is produced by the sun and the wind? Very little. Um, Germany's, they don't get a lot of sun in Germany, particularly in the winter. They can't rely on uh, on solar at all. Um, their solar panels are covered with snow a lot of the time. So solar is completely useless. And if the wind's not blowing, then it's also completely useless. So they can't rely on wind and solar for any of their energy. They, they need to have 100% backup capabilities from coal, natural gas, oil, or, or nuclear power. 
Um, it's it's it, it went down an insane insane path. Doesn't make any sense. I was just talking to Pierre Goslin, um, who's in Germany this morning, and he said everybody's buying wood now. They they know they don't want to freeze to death during the winter, so people are stocking up on wood. Yeah, which means they're going to have a huge air pollution problem. Every people, any, anybody who's got the ability to burn wood is going to be burning wood, which makes a lot of pollution. They're going to have a lot of smoke. Um, the air is going to be unhealthy, and it's a direct result of their government's decision to get away from clean fossil fuels. Right. The energy bills in Europe have increased by 1.4 trillion euros just in the first quarter of 2022. 1.4 trillion euros, uh, that's how much energy bills in Europe have increased just in the first three months of 2022. Uh, it's just, it's going to be, it could potentially be cataclysmic this winter and, and people are going to freeze to death. I hope it doesn't happen, but it's going to happen. I don't know how many people. That's all on the uh, the ruling classes uh, heads. All of them. They're responsible. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Yep. Yeah, it's all, and it all comes back to the whole climate scam, which is just based on misinformation. It has nothing to do with reality. There isn't any climate crisis. The burning of fossil fuels doesn't have a significant effect on the climate. The whole thing's complete idiocy. There is no reason for it. All right. We come back. I want to talk about something called the climate change industrial complex. I mean, somebody's getting wealthy off of this hoax. We'll find out who and how. Tony Heller, founder of RealClimateScience.com, stays with us. Back with more in a moment. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. Wednesdays, we push back against the death cult of climate change. Uh, Stephen Moore is a distinguished fellow in economics at the Heritage Foundation, and he wrote a recent piece. Let me just crib from that. He writes, in America and around the globe, governments have created a multi-billion dollar climate change industrial complex. A lot of people are getting really, really rich off the climate change industry. Tony Heller is the founder of RealClimateScience.com. Tony, I like that term, the climate change industrial complex. We're all familiar with the military industrial complex. This is a, a kind of a, uh, a change on that, but I, I think it's totally apt. Uh, how rich are people getting off uh, of the, uh, the climate change uh, hoax and, and how are they doing it? Well, certainly like Al Gore has made half a billion dollars off of it personally. 
um, lots of academics like Michael Mann's probably number one climate fraudster in academia. He's made many millions of dollars um, pushing this scam. Um, and there's more to that story, which I want to discuss sometime, but not necessarily now. Um, if you go back to 2009, um, Lawrence Solomon wrote in the Financial Post, which is now the National Post, that the climate change industry has emerged as the world's largest industry. There's a huge amount of people making money off of this. Um, in academia and in, in business, um, government, it's just become sort of a all-encompassing way for people in many different walks of life to move money from the poor and middle class into their own pockets, which is essentially what's going on here. I'm actually making a series of videos about this right now. I'm, I released one of them yesterday. So, yeah, it's a, it's a massive money-making scam, and that's what it's been all along. Upton Sinclair said, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it, and that's exactly what's going on. Academics are being paid to push this scam. They're certainly not going to say anything different because if they did, they would lose their funding, they'd lose their job, they'd lose their reputation, and they would be scorned and ridiculed by their peers who don't want to lose the money. Right. So uh, just going back to this article by Stephen Moore, again, writing, uh, he's a a distinguished fellow in economics at the Heritage Foundation, and uh, he's talking about the amount of money uh, that's being poured into what he calls, again, this climate change industrial complex. Uh, and he starts, you know, back in 1993, it was $2.4 billion. And that's um, federal funding for climate change research, technology, international assistance, adaptation. So it went from $2.4 billion in 93 to $11.6 billion in 2014, and an additional $26.1 billion for climate change programs, uh, provided by the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act in 2009. Um, so, I mean, often critics of climate change are being accused of being in league with big oil. Uh, I'm sure that's, you know, you've been accused of being in, being paid off. You're, an, you're a shill for big oil because why else would you argue against, you know, man-made climate change? Um, but it seems to me that the people that are really on the take are, by and large, as you say, the academics and the researchers who are getting, you know, billions of dollars from the federal government. Yeah, there's I, I used to get accused of that all the time. I think they've given up. They realize that it's just not true. Um, yeah, there's always these claims that climate skeptics are getting millions of dollars um, from oil companies, which for the most part is is just not true. But as you mentioned, the numbers on the other side are much, much larger. They're in tens of billions of dollars going into the other side. So there there are three or four orders of magnitude more money going into the climate alarmism than there would be from oil companies. So the whole argument is completely bogus. And what I find particularly interesting about it is that the people who make these arguments, they're making the argument, they're saying that scientists can be corrupted by money, um, but they refuse to accept the fact that almost all the money is on the other side. It's on the alarmist side. So apparently they think that scientists can only be corrupted by oil company money, not by government money. Right, right. Um, 
In the article, Moore, Moore, Moore goes on to write, five years ago, a leftist group called the Climate Policy Initiative Initiative issued a study which found that global investment in climate change reached $359 billion that year. As he then writes, then to give you a sense of how, more, uh, how money-hungry these planet savior, savers are, The CPI moaned that this spending falls far short of what is needed, a number estimated at $5 trillion. So the climate change industrial complex, they want $5 trillion of taxpayer money. Think about what we could do with $5 trillion. Yeah, these people are criminals. They're just stealing, like I said, they're just stealing money from the poor and middle class taxpayers and transferring it into their own pockets. The whole thing's a scam. It's a massive money making scam. They're the reverse Robin Hoods. They're stealing from the poor and giving to the rich. And they're horrible people. There's the whole thing is driven by really, really bad, nasty people. And, and they've co-opted good people into believing that they're that they're saving the planet with their horrible Ponzi scheme. I like this. I'm going to start using this more often. The climate change industrial complex. Tony Heller, founder of realclimatescience.com. Look for his videos and his blogs there. Realclimatescience.com. Also on YouTube, NewTube and BitChute. And uh, again, Tony, you're, you're producing a number of videos on this very topic uh, right now. Yep. Fantastic. Yep. All right. You have a great rest of the week. We'll talk again next Wednesday. Thanks. You too, Richard. Tony Heller. All right. Hour two coming up. Lydia Perovich, the author of Lost in Canada and Immigrants Second Thoughts, will be here. And uh, we'll also check in with Kelly Brown from Rubicon Capital, independent investor and the unofficial and accidental COVID-19 data analyst. We'll talk about uh, this preprint study. Scientists from Harvard and John Hopkins have found that COVID-19 vaccines are 98 times worse than the virus. And uh, further, they say that these vaccine mandates in colleges and universities are ethically unjustifiable. Hour two awaits. Don't go away. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Repeating, we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. Hey there, welcome to Hour 2, and if you missed Hour 1, you missed a lot, but don't despair. Lots of great programming 
to come this hour, including our very own Mark Petrone, host of the Mark Petrone Show. Heard weekdays, 1 to 3 p.m. here on the Mighty Saga 960. And uh, my colleague will be here to talk about a global news reporter, David Aiken, rudely heckling Pierre Polyev during a, a speech. Not only did he heckle Polyev during his speech, but allegedly he went up to Polyev's uh, press secretary. I believe his name is Anthony uh, Koch or Koch or Koch, Anthony Koch, Polyev's press secretary. And Aiken, who was supposed to be an unbiased journalist, said to the press secretary, you go tell Pierre Polyev to go F himself. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Curiosity Stream is the streaming service for people who want to know more. And now check out Curiosity's new series, Queens of Ancient Egypt. When pharaohs held the throne, their wives held the power. We see her taking precedence over the pharaoh, an absolute mastermind. All hail the queens. This is unprecedented. Watch Queens of Ancient Egypt now on Curiosity Stream with monthly, annual, and bundled plans. Find the one that works for you at curiositystream.com. And then during the speech, as Polyev is attempting to make his statement, Aiken keeps interrupting and talking over him, shouting over him and heckling him. It was an unbelievable display. So uh, we'll talk about that with Mark Petroni. Scientists from Harvard and Johns Hopkins and I believe nine other institutions have uh, published a preprint study and found COVID-19 vaccines 98 times worse than the virus. One of the interesting quotes from that, that, that report, that college and university vaccine mandates are ethically unjustifiable. Kelly Brown from Rubicon Capital, our independent and unofficial and accidental COVID data analyst, We'll be here to talk about that. Right now, Lydia Perovich left her homeland of Montenegro in the former Republic of Yugoslavia in the late 90s and came to Canada. She threw herself into our vibrant artistic and cultural communities and she was happy with her decision until about five years ago. And she said, Canada began to change. She's written a book. It's called Lost in Canada, an Immigrant's Second Thoughts. Lydia Perovich, welcome to the program. How are you? Not 
so badly. I apologize for my voice. I'm just nine, ten days out of COVID, so I'm not a hundred percent with my voice. But I think I think I'll be okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's go back to the late '90s. What um, uh, precipitated your decision to to leave Montenegro again? Uh, this new new republic that emerged after the collapse of the former Yugoslavia, and and leave that and come to Canada. There was, uh, as some of your listeners will remember, there were civil wars in Yugoslavia in 1990s. Yes. Uh, about three or four in a row. And uh, if you were in your early 20s at that point, it was a very unfortunate, I mean, for everybody. But if you're a young person uh, was trying to work uh, something for yourself, a career, a, 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 meaning, a meaning of life, working towards a, a finding meaning to your life, was extremely difficult. So the region had lost hundreds of thousands of young people and keeps losing hundreds of thousands of young people, unfortunately. So one of those, so one of those uh, humans was I. And I got a scholarship to study politics at Dalhousie, political theory, and then I went. Uh, just after NATO finished its bombing, of course, at the end of it all, NATO did the bombing of Serbia and Montenegro over the war in Kosovo. I mean, it's end- it was endless. So I went and uh, stayed. I found uh, right after graduation, I found my first job and uh, one thing led to another. And uh, the province of Canada was was a liberal democracy. That was the ideal. It didn't really matter what your ethnicity is. Uh, at least that was the ideal. Of course, like hires like, that's always the case. But the ideal is we're all in this together. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, what religion you are, what sex you are, what ideological background you are. And uh, there were the basic liberal values like freedom of speech, uh, freedom of assembly, libraries will carry all kinds of books. Nobody was going to protest libraries for carrying all kinds of books. That was highly unusual. Job ads did not come with specified ethnicity, which is something I see a lot of. Universities didn't didn't declare their job is now decolonization and minority knowledges rather than knowledge. Uh, it was it was a liberal democracy back then. Um, right, right. And so all, all these things all these things have changed over the last few years. Right. You said uh, you write that about, you first started to notice a change about five years ago. What happened? What what was it five years ago specifically that uh, you noticed that said, oh, things are changing here and not for the better? I mean, if you ask, I think it's a North American phenomenon. If you ask, and probably the Anglosphere phenomenon, and it's probably coming from the U.S. originally, uh, because we're all lapping up these culture wars like crazy now. I mean, the Internet, the Internet has changed everything. It, it got to journalism and it, and it turned social media into a crucial part of our lives. That's how we communicate, especially in the last two or three years. And uh, so now you have all this talk of race. And so if you ask, for, for example, if you ask different Americans, when did it start? They would say 12 or 13 or 14. That's probably when it started coming up here as well. <clears throat> but it got really, really intense in the last, let's say, four or five years, and the pandemic years have have worsened everything. And uh, I'm hoping, I'm hoping it's it's just a trend. I'm I'm hope. I mean, you, you can talk to various people. There are people who who totally lost any hope that they think the institutions have been captured, um, and they're not liberal. They're not going to be liberal anymore. It's going to be something else now. But I mean, hopefully, governments change. Culture, zeitgeist changes, cultural institutions change. So I'm hoping this is temporary because uh, 
We're really, really playing with fire. Uh, that's so true. I, I, I have talked to dozens of um, individuals who left Eastern Europe, remember communism, remember life in, in Poland under communism, life in Romania, in East Germany, in Czechoslovakia, what was then Czechoslovakia, of course, now mm-hmm. it's two countries. And they, they, they came here to escape that. And they've noticed also uh, in the last five, maybe even 10 years, this creep towards what they see as authoritarian style government and a move to the a dramatic move t- to the left. Uh, and they say they're very uncomfortable with what's happening here. Um, do you do you I mean, you're speaking you're speaking culturally, but what about politically? Are you nervous about the the trajectory of this country politically and perhaps a move to uh, a, an authoritarian style government a move to the left, the far left? Well, I mean, it's it's been a strange it, uh, I mean, to repeat myself, the pandemic has heightened everything. It's been a strange three years in particular. Um, I don't know if I would call it the left. I mean, it's a bunch of academics who call themselves leftists. But I mean, look at the, our housing situation. You, you really cannot live in big cities anymore. Uh, we don't really have uh, uh, low and mid-income friendly cities anymore. Uh, look at the domination of cars. And look at how much we're working. Or, or, I think we're working more than ever. And I don't think these jobs are, are making us uh, happy. And there's this increasing incidence in uh, drug addiction. There's increasing depression. There's all these things that tell me we're not really living any kind, living in any kind of leftist utopia because all these things, I mean, mental health, what do we have for mental health resources in this country? You get depressed. You have really have to be rich to get therapy in this country. So there's all these things that have been traditionally on the radar of the left. They're completely neglected. And everything is now about identities, I suppose. It's how you declare. It's about ethnic background. It's what skin your color is. It's, it's extraordinary to me how what, this is a weird switch that's happened. And now that's called left. But, but, but I take your point. There's been authoritarian moments in the last few years, for sure. Right. You also noticed that um, Canadian arts journalism and criticism started to disappear. Where, why that field specifically and where, where did it disappear to? Well, it's it's a multi-pronged uh, 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 disappearance base. Uh, I mean, first, the Internet gutted arts journalism. Uh, and if you ha- I mean, if you look at, for example, British journalism, uh, their media honchos said, no, we're going to keep arts journalism, even though it doesn't attract gajillion of clicks. And it doesn't we're not talk about we're not talking about culture war in our arts journalism. Or if you look at France and even Papers like the New York Times and, and Washington Post and various big U.S. papers, they've all kept arts journalism. But we haven't in Canada. Now, there there have been some, we basically had two or three years virtually zero arts journalism. Uh, there was some, there were a couple of people left in the globe who don't really publish a lot. But uh, I mean, now I've noticed the Star and the Globe are intending to increase that a little bit. So why is it important? I mean, I have a lot of friends who ask me, why is it important that art's going to exist anyway? I don't think, I'm not sure art, arts, is, arts are going to be healthy without a conversation about the arts. And another thing about arts journalism is, I mean, if journalism is the first draft of history, I mean, I think arts journalism is the first draft of a culture of the conversations that we're having Mm -hmm. among ourselves. And if you use that 
word, which I gladly use in the book, of a nation. I think there's something to be said of that kind of great solidarity across regional differences, across linguistic differences, religious differences that unifies us in a nation, in a common project. And one of the advantages of Canadian project was that it was an ethnic based. Like It really didn't matter what ethnicity you were. You can partake in this liberal democratic project where where ideally, uh, in spite of all our differences, we're, we're, we're creating something together. Lydia Perovich is the author of Lost in Canada, An Immigrant's Second Thoughts. We'll take a quick time. I'll come back and continue to talk about her second thoughts about her second home. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Richard Serra Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Again, Lydia Perovich, the author of Lost in Canada, An Immigrant's Second Thoughts. Um, you, you write that you feel that um, uh, Canada has lost its will to be a nation and a culture. What do you mean by that? I think, I don't know whether you share this impression or any listeners, but I think we've never been more American. And we've never been divided more along American lines than we are these days. And of course, the main division in America is along the racial lines. So it's a lot of talk about race in America. And so there's a lot of talk about race in Canada as well, which is highly unusual for Canadian circumstances. We usually have linguistic, ethnic differences, cultural differences. Race, I mean, race wasn't that important in our history. Apparently, it's hugely important now. And I mean, race is such a weird concept. I, I mean, there's no science behind it. It's it's a thing that doesn't exist. Ethnic backgrounds exists. But I mean, race, that's such a pseudoscientific. Concept. Anyway, we're crazy about it now. And of course, we don't and ent- we don't entirely copy the black and white division that the U.S. is so obsessed about. We have our own, which is between the settler and the indigenous. And that is where all our, like 90 percent of our conversations in culture are happening right now and in politics, which is very, very strange investment because we've always been mixed. I don't I don't think you can find a pure pure non uh, pure indigenous person or we, we intermarried like a pure ethnicity of any kind we just intermarry all the time so so can you you ask the question you know can this country survive without a natu- a national culture can it i mean we could be we could be ohio i <laughs> i suppose we could survive like on on machines, <clears throat> like a body on machines without its own culture, we could, our media can cover American topics. But I mean, is that a na- nation that should exist? I, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, we, we should just, we should work on our own project, perfect our own narratives, perfect our own uh, I, I know, questions. I, it would be too bad. It would be too bad. I mean, maybe you had got a chance to open the book. I had this list of all the things, movies, um, uh, theater plays, uh, 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 different kind of uh, pieces of arts that helped me understand Canada. And it's, it's works from the last maybe 50 years when we were really interested in Canadian culture. And I don't think you could look at the last 10 to 20 years. I don't think you can get a massive list out of it. And I, it was, I felt it was a strange exercise in archaeology, really, uh, digging through, uh, through um, 
the times where Canadians did care about their own culture and they, they did think Canadians should have their own culture. Now, of course, I'm not talking about knee-jerk anti-Americanism, which, of course, we are guilty of as well. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, but uh, it's just basic. I mean, some of these statistics, statistics around book reading, we read so few of our own authors. It's just extraordinary. And the Anglo part of Canada, we just don't watch our own movies or television. And instead of us worrying about this we're, we're, and, and trying to fix it, We've now decided, no, the, the, the point of culture is to solve social justice issues and ethnic representation issues. And so now you have Canada Council of the Arts doing manifestos on how the arts should fix the social justice issue. It's extraordinary to me. So this will just alienate more people. It's not going to attract more people. Right. I mean, how can we how can we instill pride in our country when that very notion now is deemed as colonialism and racist? And and um, I mean, this is, again, as you say, maybe something that's been imported from the United States. But we, now we have in our schools, they're being basically taught uh, you know, that, that, that our past is, um, you know, w- we were racist, we were colonizers, we should tear down all these, the vestiges of our, yeah. of our forefathers and, and so forth. I mean, that's certainly a recipe for the destruction of a nation, if ever there was one. Absolutely. And bonds that tie us together. I mean, something has to tie us together. We can't be living differently amongst ourselves, but if we keep saying to each other, we, we just we are just a history of hatred and genocide, that's what's going to happen. We're going to be a nomic society that doesn't have basic solidarity figured out. I mean, the word genocide, people are unwise to use the words genocide the way they, they've been using it, and racism and fascism, and everybody's a Nazi. And come on, just, just be serious. Right. Uh, it's so true. I mean, the other thing that that I see uh, is you cannot have a, a country without a common language or two, let's yeah. say. Or and and I mean, you get on the uh, the streetcar and you hear forty or fifty different languages. It's like the United Nations, and and you know, the people in, uh, should be allowed to obviously, uh, you know, teach their children their their native tongue and so forth. But unless we have and agree upon a common language, we cannot exist as a country. We do not have that. In fact, this whole cult I call it of the cult of uh, diversity. Uh, diversity is our strength. Diversity is not a strength. It's not a weakness. It's morally neutral. Uh, except it can be a weakness when it is accentuated above everything else. Would you Would you not agree? I would. I would. Uh, I mean, unlike in the U.S., for example, or France, if you immigrate to either of these two, there's a lot of stories that awaits you. There's a lot of options they can really here have this, read this, read about that. There are, these are people who have made a difference in our history. These are the chunks of our history. You can have debates about this. I don't think Canada has that. And I don't think it's 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 ever been very strong on that kind of stuff. What do we offer to new citizens uh, in terms of uh, belonging, in terms of uh, narratives they can they can put their lives into? I don't think we've, we've been kind of uh, milk and toast about it. Yeah, you choose you choose what you want. And of course, people would choose their own ethnic group because they have their infrastructure, large ethnic groups in particular. I mean, I come from a tiny ethnic group that has no schools here. No. So I actually want to be integrated more. And a lot of other ethnic uh, members of other ethnic groups do want to transcend their own ethnic group, their diaspora. I mean, why else leave the country? Exactly. Exactly. Lydia Perovich, 
the author of Lost in Canada, An Immigrant's Second Thoughts. How do we get a copy? Anywhere where the books are sold. So online, bookstores, anywhere. Terrific. Lydia, I hope we can speak again. There's much to discuss. Hopefully. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. When we come back, Kelly Brown, Rubicon Capital, the unofficial and accidental COVID data analyst. Stay with us. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. These words jump out at me as I read this story. Ethically unjustifiable. In quotes, ethically unjustifiable. Scientists from Harvard and Johns Hopkins found COVID-19 vaccines 98 times worse than the virus. Now, this is the headline, but this does that actually get reflected in the study itself? This is a new preprint study by nine health experts from major universities show that COVID-19 vaccines are 98 times worse than the virus and mandatory booster vaccination in college is, quote, ethically unjustifiable. Kelly Brown is with Rubicon Capital. He's our unofficial and accidental COVID data analyst. Kelly, welcome back. How are you? Doing well today. Uh, Nice to speak with you. You too. So again, you know, the headline jumps out. Uh, 98, the, the COVID vaccines are 98 times worse than the virus. That's the headline. But does that, is that what the study actually says? Yeah, in for one of the parameters, that being um, serious adverse events, uh, 98 serious adverse events per one COVID hospitalization prevented on a hypothetical campus of 30,000 people. It's a very good study. It's a very simple study. Uh, it's a very digestible, done by some very credible people at some very credible universities. And um, essentially, it, it does... What hasn't been done enough, uh, close to not at all during the whole pandemic, and that is a risk-benefit analysis. This is a very, very simple, uh, eloquent paper. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Curiosity Stream is the streaming service for people who want to know more. And now check out Curiosity's new series, Queens of Ancient Egypt. When pharaohs held the throne, their wives held the power. We see her taking precedence over the pharaoh, an absolute mastermind. All hail the queens. This is unprecedented. Watch Queens of Ancient Egypt now on Curiosity Stream. With monthly, annual, and bundled plans, find the one that works for you at curiositystream.com. Uh, let me just, I mean, I'm trying to digest 
that. And I, and I, I saw the headline and then you've sort of reiterated that at least with one of the parameters, uh, again, let me think, see if I understand this. So for every um, hospitalization from COVID that is prevented, you have anywhere from 18 to 98 actual serious adverse events. That's correct. And, and so the other parameters are uh, less serious uh, adverse events that would be experienced, but they're called, which they're calling greater than grade three or greater reactogenicity, reactogenicity which is basically your uh, a run of the mill adverse event. Uh, that's between, so on a campus of 30,000 people, uh, you'd have 1,300 to 3,200 adverse events of grade three, three or greater for every COVID hospitalization prevented. What are we doing then? I mean, that makes no sense that we would be, that we would be mandating, for example, uh, at the university of Western Ontario, the students uh, become fully vaccinated unless they decide they want to donate to the university and then they're exempt. I figure that one out. Uh, we have mothers, for example, in British Columbia on maternity leave for who work for um, in the provincial um, for as in a provincial employee, a nurse or a teacher. They will be fired if they don't take the jab. They are being ordered to pay back maternity benefits, maternity leave benefits, unless they get the jab. And then we have this study. Uh, wh- what the hell are we doing? <laughs> well, it's. Uh... I think you're right. It, it, you're, you're of course right. It, it, it's highlighting the wide gulf, just how wide the gulf is between the administrators at these universities and the data itself. Um, and so, and it's really unfortunate because it, it op- I mean, look what we're doing right now. It, it opens up everyone to speculate what the heck's going on here. And, and, and one of the points of the paper is that uh, it causes uh, loss of trust. Um, and that in itself is a, is an ethical reason to, uh, to, to, to not have, it's an argument against an ethical argument against these types of mandates. We're going to take a quick time out. Kelly Brown will stay with us. One more segment as we discuss, uh, this remarkable, shocking preprint study, ethically unjustifiable. The scientists from Harvard and Johns Hopkins say regarding vaccine mandates in colleges and universities and elsewhere, The study found COVID-19 vaccines 98 times worse than the virus itself. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Just having a little chin wag on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Back with Kelly Brown from Rubicon Capital, independent investor and our unofficial accidental COVID data analyst. You can follow him on Twitter at underscore Rubicon Capital, at underscore Rubicon Capital, talking about this uh, study. It's a preprint study. Scientists from Harvard and Johns Hopkins found COVID-19 vaccines 98 times worse than the virus. Uh, it's it's a preprint. Just Can you explain what that means exactly? Yeah, it, it just means that it hasn't had a full peer review from others, uh, essentially an independent review from others in the scientific com- community to offer their comment and blessing uh, that it's a that it's a um, a good report, um, but uh, it doesn't mean that it's not valid on its face. Right. Um, and I mean, I'm asking you to speculate, but I mean, how likely is this study? Because, again, it it goes against the, the narrative. Um, 
how likely is it to get published in, let's say, the British Medical Journal or the New England Journal of Medicine or Lancet? Frankly, I'm actually not the guy to ask about that. I, I've never been through the peer review process myself. I don't know what the probabilities of these things are, unfortunately. Right, right. Um, so they call it, the, 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 the quote here again is, ethically unjustifiable. Um, that's kind of strange language for scientists. I mean, I don't think I've ever heard scientists talk like that, 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 you know, they come out, they just sort of let the data speak for themselves. But do you find that interesting that the scientists are actually using that kind of language that mandates are justifiable or ethically unjustifiable? Well, yeah, I, I, I I do think it's interesting. I I think the, I think the, the, the issue itself is, is raises ethical issues automatically. I think they, they come right to the front and, I I like the way that they are addressing the question of booster mandates from an ethical standpoint, and they list the five uh, the five reasons why this is eth- why they believe based on the numbers that uh, that a booster mandate is ethically unjustifiable. And I think it's as I said at the up the top, I think it's very simple. And I'll just you know I can just talk yes. about the five points here. So the first being no formal risk benefit assessment exists for this age group, which is which is very true. This is really one of the first attempts to 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 try that. So the second one getting into the heart of the matter, vaccine mandates may result in a net expected harm to young people or as you read through the paper to to the individual. The individual has a potential uh, has a uh, a poor risk benefit ratio. Number three, the mandates are not proportionate and expected harms are not outweighed by public health benefits. So in other words, there is no, on the basis of having uh, uh, no transmission efficacy, there's actually no wider benefit, even if there was individual harm, right. uh, even if the individual ratio uh, was not was not favorable. And number four, uh, the U.S. mandates violate reciprocity principle. There's no uh, or inadequate vaccine injury compensation programs. And then number five, which is, uh, I think, perhaps most important, is mandates create wider social harms. And this is interesting because it's this is the piece of it that is unquantifiable. So we're able to study, you know, individual populations of you know, and, and come up with those numbers, the things that are measurable, but but wider social harms are not measurable. And how do you factor that in, especially when, you know, it, it's we know that the individual and population based uh, risk, uh, risk reward uh, ratios are unfavorable. So they make a really compelling argument here, I think. Right. But then and they, they also go on to suggest that, you know, um, because they're talking specifically about, you know, college a college campus. But then what does this study mean for other mandates in, uh, you know, with, uh, let's say, federal employees, let's say a police force <clears throat> or the military? Um, um, well, well, the the same ethical principles apply, and they do talk a bit about that in the paper. And I actually encourage people to go read this. Um, it's, you know, I think they make, they, they, they poured over the same ethical arguments to, to these other, um, to these other professions and other institutions. Um, it's it's a very simple uh, risk benefit type of equation. And I and and you know the, the other interesting thing that kind of comes up here is, you know, we don't talk about 
we're, what we're doing here is we're really talking about relative risk benefits. So we're saying the vaccine, we're accepting that the vaccine has some harm to it. Uh, but if it prevents however many hospitalizations or deaths, you know, population wide, okay, well, then those harms are acceptable so long as the, the ratio is favorable. But it actually begs an interesting question to say, should we actually be uh, demanding more absolute levels of safety from vaccines? Um, it, I think it's an interesting question. It can be debated. Uh, but we've seen, and I only mention it because these vaccines appear to have side effect profiles far worse than uh, other vaccines that we've had, for example, in the childhood vaccination schedules for many years. So it, it begs an interesting question on absolute levels of safety, which I don't really see talked about much as opposed, we seem to focus on the relative benefits. It's an excellent point. And, um, you know, it's been stated many times by other people, and that is where there is risk, there must be choice. And as they've outlined here, there is risk. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I'm really glad they did this paper because it's uh, it's a really good one. Terrific. Uh, terrific work. Uh, thank you so much, Kelly. Appreciate thank, it. Thanks, Richard. Kelly Brown, Rubicon Capital, and you can follow him on Twitter at Rubicon, sorry, at underscore Rubicon Capital, at underscore Rubicon Capital. When we come back, my Saga 960 colleague, Mark Petroni, will talk about the global news reporter, David Aiken, who rudely heckled Pierre Polyev during a recent speech. Stay with us. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. All right. What a character this David Aiken is from Global News, heckling newly minted conservative leader Pierre Polyev, just as he was about to uh, deliver his statement or his response, if you will, to uh, Trudeau's inflation fighting plan. And Aiken starts shouting over Polyev, heckling him repeatedly. And then we get word from... Polyev's press secretary, Anthony Koch, I believe, or, or, or Koch, Anthony Koch, that David Aiken, again, global news journalist, went up to Anthony Koch, Koch and uh, said, you can tell Pierre Polyev to go F himself. What is that? What is that? Who does this guy think he is? Mark Petroni is uh, my wonderful colleague from Saga 960 and can be heard weekdays on the Mark Petroni show from 1 to 3 p.m. Mark, welcome back. How are you, buddy? Richard, great to be on your show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, we're seeing a bit of a media freak out. I think they were uh, taken aback, not necessarily by the fact that Polyev won, but by the fact that he won huge. And so they see him as a threat. And uh, now what we're seeing is couple of things happening first off the media is starting to circle the wagons around david aiken so rather than saying yeah he made a mistake and he apologized no they're saying it was it was paul yev's fault this tweet by glenn mcgregor over at ctv i wasn't at either event so i didn't see what happened today but in st andrews uh, prime minister justin trudeau took 11 questions from journalists over about 28 minutes, an Ottawa CPC leader, Pierre Poyev, took two questions for a bit over two minutes. So you see, it's justifiable. Yelling obscenity. Well, he didn't yell obscenities, but he yelled something at Pierre Poyev and quite possibly told a staffer uh, that uh, Pierre should go F himself. Apparently, that's justifiable in the world of McGregor and other uh, 
so-called reporters because he just didn't take enough questions for their liking. So, right, right. so here they are. They, yeah, they're all part of the same team, Richard. Well, it's and it's justifiable if you're a journalist and the person on the receiving end is a conservative. But if you're some, you know, gruff, bearded um, gentleman out in Grand Prairie and you try and do the same uh, and, you know, verbally accost uh, and throw um, expletives at the uh, deputy prime minister, all of a sudden, you know, you're a white supremacist uh, scumbag. Yeah, uh, they're all trying to justify their behavior now as far as this is concerned. So they're not turning on Aiken at all. They're somehow saying that it was Paul Yev's fault. But the other thing that happened as a result of this is that Paul Yev is fundraising. Uh, we had this uh, from Ezra Levant. Uh, Paul Yev uh, is fundraising off David Aiken's profanity-laced meltdown. And this is a very important development because it means Paul Yev knows there's no distinction between the Liberal Party and the media party which is Ezra's term for the so-called journalists, and he won't bend a knee to the liberal trolls. And they're not used to this, Richard, because they ha- they certainly had their way with Aaron O'Toole, but they don't seem to understand that there's a new sheriff in town and Polyev is not going to take their crap. Right. I think there has been a shift, and, and we've seen the polls come out come out recently about how few Canadians, the, the you know, the horrible um, level of trust in the mainstream media now, uh, it's it's just a, it's abysmal and I mean, deservedly so. Um, and so I think I think it is a win, a winning strategy for Polyev to metaphorically slap around the media a little bit. Uh, I think that's going to I think Canadians are going to really appreciate that because they're just as sick and tired of the biased, bought and paid for left wing media as conservative politicians are. And when you throw in hundreds of millions of dollars into the mix because not only did he bail out the, uh, the newspapers, he's also throwing uh, tens of millions at the broadcasters themselves. So uh, I guess there's money at stake here. They know it. And uh, Paul Yavis said he's going to take away their punch bowl if he becomes prime minister. So not only are they fighting, are they fighting for Justin whom they love, but they're also fighting for this, their own survival financially speaking. Anyway, i got to ask you this um, because Saturday night when Polyev won, I listened to his speech. I went back and I listened to it several times. And in the days following, and to my knowledge, I could be wrong about this, but he still hasn't reaffirmed uh, his commitment to defund the CBC, nor has he reaffirmed his commitment to scrap the carbon tax, the, the present one, and also the, the, the one that's coming down the pipe, which is the, uh, the clean fuel standard tax. Uh, and I got to think that this is, I mean, it's making me nervous because we went through this with O'Toole. He promised to do the same, defund the CBC, scrap the carbon tax, and he pivoted immediately uh, to the center and, and backed away from that promise. So there are a lot of conservatives, I'm thinking, out there that have been, you know, once bitten, twice shy, and are waiting for him to pivot. Uh, are you equally nervous that he hasn't reaffirmed that commitment? No, um, he's, he's tweeted out. He's, he's spoken about this. I mean, um, he's, to, he's talked about uh, fighting inflation and within the context of fighting inflation, you have to reduce taxes. You have to, you have to get rid of the carbon taxes. I mean, uh, that's his, strategy for bringing prices down, for easing the burden on, to, on consumers as part of the overall plan. 
Right. So, I know he did uh, mention he did he mention had. that, but he didn't he didn't specifically name the carbon tax is what I'm getting at. He talked about lowering taxes and about small government and he talked around it, but he it was noticeably absent. I mean, on the campaign trail, he hammered that all the time and then nothing since then. Yeah, well, he's been he's been in since what, the weekend. So I I'm not nervous at all. And uh, no, I mean, it would be outrageous for him to pivot on ta- on carbon taxes. I mean, given everything that you've said, which is that this has really been one of the key uh, parts of his of his campaign, of his leadership campaign. So the idea that he would uh, turn on his supporters now, um, I, I'm not buying that. I'm not nervous. Not yet. Anyway, Richard. OK, how long how, how much time has to go by before you start to get a little bit nervous, Mark? Well, he, he's not he's not prime minister. There's not a whole lot he can do. I mean, as leader of the opposition, he can certainly hammer Justin Trudeau for his carbon taxes and demand that they be revoked. In fact, he came out recently after he won the election, after he won the leadership, and he called on Justin Trudeau not to raise the carbon tax again in order to give consumers a break. And and what did uh, Justin Trudeau do? Came up with a plan to spend, what, four, over $4 billion dollars print another $4 billion, throw it into the economy uh, and uh, hope that that deals with the inflation problem. No, uh, I'm not concerned. I mean, if, if you're asking me, I mean, uh, if we're a couple of months in and he hasn't mentioned it, well, then maybe. But no, I, I'm not concerned at this point. All right. Mark, what's coming up on the uh, the big program tomorrow? The Mark Petroni Show. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, we're going to zoom across the pond and talk about the, the, what's going on with the funeral. Of course, the funeral is going to be on, on Monday. Mm-hmm. So we have Anna Grayson Morley, who is, uh, is going to be on the show. She's going to be talking a little bit about uh, what's going on and the mood of Britons. And, uh, and so she's always terrific, by the way. She does a, a fantastic job. We've got Joe Warmington on the show. Um, he's going to be talking a little bit about his thoughts regarding this this uh, Aiken situation, as well as the ongoing, cr- you know, the crunch as far as crime is going in Toronto. I mean, this is a, a real serious problem, as you know, being there. Yes. Uh, it just seems like people and, uh, you know, who's to blame? Is it the justice system that allows more and more criminals out on the street that uh, turns them into victims rather than the actual victims of crime? Same things we're seeing in a lot of blue cities in the United States. And it's been absolutely devastating, Richard. I hope it doesn't happen in Toronto, but it's, we're headed in that direction, it appears. Mark Petrone, host of the Mark Petrone Show, weekdays 1 to 3, right here on Saga 960. Mark, great talking to you again. Be well, my friend. Richard, thank you so much for inviting me on the show. I can't wait for you to come on my show again, too, because uh, I know our listeners really appreciate having you on. Thank you. All right, buddy. We'll talk soon. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Declan, and Jacob. Happy birthday again, Declan. I'll be uh, back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. I'll speak with you at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you tomorrow afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. 
Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. We all love the low country lifestyle, which is why we should do our best to protect it. To get insurance that helps you protect your home from whatever the low country throws at you, contact CT Lounge and Company today. Their local agents can review your coverage to help make sure you're properly protected. CT Lounge and Company has been helping protect and insuring the low country since 1850. Visit ctlounds.com to learn more and request a quote. That's ctlounds.com.